Thanks for downloading or purchasing this sermon from Christchurch Forward. To find out more, visit forwardchurch.co.uk or join us on Sundays. Good morning, everyone. It's very good to be here together on this Easter Sunday, so thank you for coming. And please do keep your Bibles open at that reading from Matthew's Gospel. It begins on page 1000. We'll be looking at that together in the next few moments. So let me pray for us as we do that. Our Father, we thank you for these wonderful words that we have written before us in Matthew's Gospel, words that speak of life and death defeated. And in a world that is so cynical about these events, Father, please help us to know why we can believe them with great confidence. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Someone is trying to deceive us. If you were to ask people what is wrong with the world today, along with the, 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 the normal answers about poverty and global warming and terrorism, and we've heard again terrible headlines this morning, along with those answers, this last two years, we would hear a new answer. It's fake news. According to the Collins Dictionary, fake news was the word of the year last year. It is alleged that fake news was very much involved in the presidential elections in the States most recently in the referendum for Brexit here in this country and it goes on being alleged to be involved in lots of ways around the world today. Someone is trying to deceive us. But since the allegation of fake news is a rock that both sides can throw at each other, it's hard to know who to believe. We are urged not to be naive. We are urged not to read everything we hear or accept everything, um, to accept everything we read or hear. Uh, we are urged to be the kind of people who are thoughtful and we dig into the details to see if they really add up. And that is certainly true this morning because as we look at Matthew's gospel, we're going to discover that fake news is not a 21st century invention. No, it was alive and well back in the first century We'll see that in Matthew's gospel, there are two very different stories swirling around the media. One story goes like this. Jesus died on Friday, crucified on a Roman cross, and he remains very much dead to this day. The other story swirling around the media is that Jesus died on the Friday, crucified on the Roman cross, And he is very much alive today. Someone is lying to you. Someone is trying to deceive us. And this morning we need to work out who it is. And if I may, the stakes are much higher than when it comes to some election or referendum. Because uh, Matthew continued his account beyond what we read. Glance forward to verse 18 of Matthew 28. Here are some of the final words on the lips of Jesus. Verse 18, he says, then Jesus came to them and said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. All authority, everywhere, over every person for all time. And either this claim is a wretched lie that needs to be torn up and shredded and binned, Or we should do what the disciples do in the previous verse and bow down and worship. 
Some of you may have heard the tragic story of a young couple from London who went on holiday to Santorini last week. Just a week ago today, on, on the Sunday last week, they were involved in a terrible accident and they were both killed. And they were both strong Christians who firmly believe that Jesus died on the Friday and was raised to life on the Sunday. They believe that he did have all authority in this world, even over the last great enemy that is death, which means that now they're either with the Lord Jesus in a life beyond death, or they have believed in vain. Someone is lying to us, and this morning we have to decide who it is. For Christians here this morning, in a world that is incredibly cynical about the claim of a resurrected Jesus, how can we go on holding on to this claim, this truth? And how can we answer those who come at us who are so skeptical? For others here this morning who are not committed Christians, it's great to have you here, as Paul said. What do we make of the evidence that Matthew puts before us? What do we make of the claim of Jesus to have all authority over us? We need to decide for ourselves. Well, we pick up the story um, this morning a few hours after Matthew records the death of Jesus. And we're going to work through the story by looking at at four moments, four key uh, moments in what happens next. The first moment is the burial. Look at verse 57 with me. As evening approached, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who had himself become a disciple of Jesus. Going to Pilate, he asked for Jesus' body, and Pilate ordered that it be given to him. Joseph wraps the body in linen. He then places it in a tomb and sealed the entrance with a large stone. All the while, verse 61, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were sitting there opposite the tomb. There are some who say that the story of the resurrection of Jesus is founded on a mistake about where the tomb was. Jesus was buried in one tomb over here and then a couple of days later, um, some women who were um, confused went to a different tomb and found it vacant. It had always been vacant and they thought, wow, he must have come back from the dead. Over the years, I've taken a number of Burials here in the churchyard around us. And if you've ever walked around the, the, the graveyard, it's actually a very large site, lots of little paths and corners. There are over several thousand graves just around us here. But in the years, not once have I come across a, a close family member or a friend who has been there at the graveside watching their beloved lowered in a coffin into the ground. Not once have I come across a person forgetting where that took place. Because that moment is unbelievably emotional. And even if we did allow that the two Marys who loved Jesus so deeply had forgotten where this grave was, there's always Pilate. You could have gone to Pilate. Pilate, what happened to the body after Jesus died? I gave it to Joseph. Which Joseph? Oh, uh, the one from Arimathea, the, um, the rich one. The one who had become a convert to follow Jesus. That, that Joseph. And you could have gone and tracked that one down very quickly and cleared up the whole issue about where the tomb was straight away. And, and Matthew's account of Jesus was written within 40 years of these events and was then in wide circulation. And one of the first readers could have read this very account and could have gone to 
Joseph himself, or if he had died, one of his family, and said to them, where's the family tomb? Show me. And they could have shown the first readers and cleared up the whole misunderstanding in a moment. But no one did. When it comes to where Jesus is buried, someone is trying to deceive us. The burial, next, the guards. The Jewish leaders were a bit twitchy at this point. They'd spent three years opposed to Jesus. They did not like his power and authority. They felt threatened by him. They were afraid that they would lose their standing in the community. And they they were involved in, in getting him killed. And at last, their enemy was dead. They weren't about to lose this moment of victory. And so look what happens next. They go to Pilate, verse 63. Sir, they said, we remember that while he was still alive, that deceiver said, after three days, I will rise again. So give the order for the tomb to be made secure until the third day. Otherwise, his disciples may come and steal the body and tell the people that he has been raised from the dead. This deception will be worse, worse than the first. Remember, the allegation of fake news is a rock both sides can throw. And here the Jewish leaders are throwing that very rock towards Jesus. He's a deceiver. He fools people. The first deception, I think, is referring to his claim to be God's Christ, the anointed one, God's universal king, ruling over everything everywhere. And they thought that was a terrible lie. The second deception, that he's come back to life with all authority. And so their big concern is to keep whatever is inside the tomb, in that tomb for the next three days to squash any unhelpful rumors that might spread. Pilate is on board, and so verse 65, we read, take a guard, Pilate answered, go, make the tomb as secure as you know how. So they went and made the tomb secure by putting a seal on the stone and posting the guard. Now some claim that Jesus did not actually die on the cross on Friday, but instead he swooned or fainted under the weight of his sufferings. But how does that sit with what we are discovering here? We know that Jesus was severely flogged by the Roman soldiers. He became so weak through loss of blood that he wasn't able to carry the cross on his shoulder. Then we know that he had nails driven through his wrists and his ankles through the the tendons and the nerves causing terrible damage then we know that he was hung on a cross for three hours and because of gravity his shoulders would have dislocated then we know that a Roman soldier drove a spear through his side and confirmed that he was dead and even if you allow that Jesus had, had survived all of that then you have to allow that he then was placed into a tomb on his own for two days without any water or first aid and then somehow he's able to revive himself and with his crushed wrists was able to take the grave clothes off himself and then with his dislocated shoulders and broken ankles, crushed ankles, he went to a tomb and broke the seal and rolled the tomb stone up the the U-shaped groove, up the hill, away from the tomb and he did all of that so quietly that the guards couldn't hear him. When it comes to whether Jesus really died, someone is lying to us. 
the burial, the gods, next, the resurrection. Verse, uh, chapter 28, verse one. After the Sabbath at dawn on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to look at the tomb. It seems then that before they arrived, uh, Matthew describes a, a violent earthquake as an angel of God appeared and rolled away this huge stone, the soldiers overcome with fear. And at this point, if the, if the thought of, a, of an angel appearing just makes the story sound bizarre and too far-fetched in your mind, then bear in mind that Matthew is writing from a point of view that where he does believe that there is a God and he does believe that God has just raised Jesus from the dead. And from that point of view, it wouldn't be a bizarre thing at all if God were to send one of his messengers to give a running commentary on what was happening. When the women do arrive, notice two huge things the angel announces. Verse six, he is not here. Despite the tomb being sealed and despite the gods, his his body is not there. A fact the women can see for themselves as they peer into the vacant tomb. Then the angel announces, verse six, he has risen. The angel's explanation for a vacant tomb is not that they've come to the wrong tomb or that Jesus had swooned and fainted. No, the explanation is a a resurrection. He is risen. Of course, an empty tomb on its own doesn't prove a resurrection, And that is why what happens next is so important. Verse nine. Suddenly Jesus met them. Greetings, he says. They came to him, clasped his feet and worshipped him. If Matthew was trying to write a fictional account some years later about a legend called Jesus, then he would not have written it this way. Because in the Jewish courts of the time, the testimony of a woman was not admissible as evidence. And yet here at this climactic moment, he places these two women as the key witnesses who have seen the resurrected Jesus. Why would he do that? Unless that is what happened. The burial, the gods, the resurrection, and finally, the lie. Verse 11. While the women were on their way, some of the guards went into the city and reported to the chief priests everything that had happened. They have a little meeting. They devise a plan. Verse 13, you are to say, his disciples came during the night and stole him away while we were still asleep. There's the explanation that the Jews give for an empty tomb and If you think about it for more than just a moment, it it doesn't really work. They're asking the soldiers to say, we fell asleep, and yet we were still able to to determine that it was the disciples who took the body. You can't tell that if you're asleep. The story also fails to account for how the disciples lived the rest of their lives, if indeed they had stolen the body. Charles Coulson served as special counsel to President Nixon during the Watergate scandal. When the scandal broke, he was found guilty for his role in the proceedings. He served time in prison. And during this time, he became a Christian. And later he wrote these words. They come up on the screen behind me. 
He writes, I know the resurrection is a fact and Watergate proved it to me. How? Because 12 men testified that they had seen Jesus raised from the dead. Then they proclaimed that truth for 40 years, never once denying it. Everyone was beaten, tortured, stoned and put in prison. They would not have endured that if it weren't true. Watergate embroiled 12 of the most powerful men in the world and they could not keep alive for three weeks. You're telling me 12 apostles could keep alive for 40 years. Absolutely impossible. Look, it's not a great cover story. But the Jews knew that uh, a theory about a wrong tomb or a swooning Jesus just wouldn't wash it. This is the best one they have. And that's the card they play. And let's be clear, both the soldiers and the chief priests know the disciples did not steal the body. But they prefer to spread a lie rather than acknowledge that Christ had been raised from the dead and that all authority had been given to him. And that is how the human heart works. A few months ago, my wife Lorna and I were trying to book a summer holiday and I found a hotel that I really liked. Lorna wasn't as convinced. So um, to sort of beef up my uh, case, I went to the website uh, TripAdvisor uh, review place and I put in the hotel and I got lots of reviews and I noticed there were lots of reviews that gave five stars everywhere. Um, apparently the food was amazing, the views stunning, the service wonderful. And I said to Lorna, look, look, look how good it is. Uh, Lorna was not convinced. She too went to the same website and looked at the same hotel and uh, she was able to find lots of reviews that were kind of one and two stars. The food was terrible, the service awful, the views were non-existent. Uh, some, of us, some of you that after the first service this morning were, were concerned about us and asked if we had actually managed to book a holiday. Um, <laughs> we have, just not that hotel. <laughs> Why is it that two people can look at the same evidence and come to very different conclusions? It's called confirmation bias. We begin with a preference that we want to affirm. And we try to find details and data that fit our starting point. We long for affirmation, not information nowadays. And so when I looked at TripAdvisor, I, I saw what I wanted to see and I, and I ignored anything that didn't fit into my uh, starting point. And here in Matthew's gospel, the Jewish leaders do not want Jesus to be their king. That is their starting point. They'll do anything to avoid his authority over them. And they will happily ignore the evidence, the details, the truth. They'll prefer to lie to keep their narrative intact. And that is how the human heart works, even today. I came across an article in a mainstream major daily newspaper this week. It quotes the results of a recent survey asking people in this country if they believed that Jesus was a real historical figure. And 40% of the people in this country who were questioned said, no. Now, how could you arrive at the conclusion that Jesus did not really exist? Is it through looking at all the evidence and coming to a reasoned, thoughtful position? It, it, it cannot be, because the evidence is overwhelming that he did exist historically. There isn't a serious historian around who believes otherwise. The evidence is overwhelming, and yet how is it that 40% of the people in this country think he did not exist? We have 
confirmation bias. We do not want to entertain the thought that there is someone in history like Jesus who might have all authority over us. And when it comes to the resurrection, many people today deny it, not because they have been persuaded by the evidence, but rather because they have already decided there is no God and their confirmation bias means they will not even engage with the details to find out if that is a belief worth believing. Someone is lying to us. As we finish, we've seen in Matthew's account, we've seen Jewish leaders, and we've seen their agenda. They're happy to lie, deceive, to keep their place. As I finish, what about Jesus? He claims to have all authority over everyone everywhere, including everyone here this morning. And that kind of claim made by any other person would sound threatening and and evil. That's an awful lot of power to have over people. But come and look at Jesus. Because before he makes that claim, come and look, he, he was willing to be betrayed by 12 of his closest friends. He was willing to be flogged by Roman soldiers, willing to be crucified on the cross and killed not for things that he had done wrong, but for for the wrongdoings, the rebellion of other people. He was willing to go through death to win for us resurrection life. He came back from the grave showing us that he has defeated every enemy, including the last great enemy, death. And he did all of it because he loves people. He longs to have us with him in the new creation after death, enjoying life eternal. He is that kind of king and when he says to us I have all authority it is the most wonderful news in the world and so I guess as I finish why wouldn't we want this king to be our king I know for many of us here this morning we have acknowledged him as our king And for you, today is a wonderful day. We're going to come in just a moment and share together a meal of bread and wine that remembers his death in our place. For for we too once were all rebels, pushing God away, sinning against him. And yet in his death, he died the death we deserved. And in his resurrection, he's won for us eternal life. That is the kind of king that we know and love and serve. Rejoice this morning. For others this morning who are not as sure about King Jesus... Someone is lying to you. The stakes are high. Would you be willing to spend a bit more time looking into the details to work out for yourself who is lying and who is telling the truth? At the end, I've got these little booklets, uh, like this one here. I'll have them at the back. At the end, I'll be on the door uh, explaining a bit more about the Easter story. I'd love just to give you one of these booklets if you want to find out more. And then Paul mentioned that course starting up on the 16th of May, Thursday night, called Christianity Explored. We're looking through one of the gospel accounts of Jesus, grappling with what he said and did, and asking our question as we do so. And if you wanted to find out more about Jesus, that would be a wonderful thing to come along to.